consumers don't generally say, you know, I can't give up my leather. Like they say, I just can't give up my cheese, right? They don't have that emotional or cultural attachment to the products. And they don't mind technology in their clothes and homes and cars. Actually, in many cases, it's desired, right? We all want more technology, but consumers are more reluctant to accept technology in their food. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 67 of the Business for Good podcast, and what an interesting one it is. Have you ever noticed that there has been an explosion of investment into the animal-free food space with makers of alternative meats and milk and eggs making more and more advancements every week, it seems? But there is really very little comparable happening in the animal-free materials space. Sure, we've had plastic-based leather alternatives like pleather for a long time, but in terms of products that are not derived from animals or from fossil fuels, what's out there on the market that's actually at scale? Turns out, just not that much. Enter the Material Innovation Initiative, a relatively new nonprofit organization started by veterans of the animal welfare and animal-free food space. Their goal? To be the Good Food Institute of Animal-Free Materials, helping to attract investment and entrepreneurial activity to build a new industry of animal-free fur, leather, silk, and more. And we've got their CEO, Nicole Rawling, on to regale us with details on the importance of building such an industry and how there is such a massive white space out there just waiting for you, dear listener, to fill. So are you thinking about starting your own company to help animals on the planet? If so, after listening to Nicole, you just may think that you'll have a more open field if you go into the alternative materials space but we'll see. I'll let her make the case to you herself. I now give you Material Innovation Initiative CEO, Nicole Rawling. Nicole, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's my honor. Although I have to admit there is some irony in me interviewing you in that I am not often credited as being the most fashionable person in a room. And in fact, my wife, Tony, recently said that she believes that our dog, Eddie, has more clothing than I do, which very well may be true since she has gotten him a bandana for seemingly every occasion of the year, which occasions I couldn't believe he needed a bandana for. But um, I'm glad to be talking with you because I presume that you know a lot more about fashion and materials than I do. I probably know a lot more. I would say I'm also not very fashionable. So it is a little odd. <laughs> and I would, I would love to see Eddie's, uh, Eddie's clothes. Um, I've seen his pictures on Facebook. He's absolutely adorable. I have to say Pitbulls are my favorite dog. We've fostered over a hundred of them. And uh, so he's, he's a pleasure to, to watch uh, as well. Very nice. Very nice. Well, first of all, that's amazing that you have fostered more than 100 Pitbulls. Over what time, over what time frame is this, Nicole? Is this over a decade or what? I mean, how, how long could you have taken to foster that many dogs? So we've actually done almost 400 animals um, starting after I graduated from undergrad. So around 2002. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Dogs, Good for you. Cats, guinea pigs, bunnies, squirrels. Wow. <laughs> well, Eddie actually started out as a foster and we fostered another pit bull at this, uh, about the same time. And we ended up keeping Eddie and adopting out the other dog. But 
uh, we knew that he was not going anywhere. Uh, but my hat is off to you. And, you know, there's only been uh, one guest who's been a two-timer on the show, John Mackey, the co-founder of Whole Foods. But anybody who is as much of a pit bull lover as you are, we might need to get you back on because that is like a whole other episode just to talk about that. But hopefully uh, you'll get to meet Eddie sometime and I'm sure that he'll be pro- appropriately dressed at that, that time if Tony has anything to do with it. But that is really cool that you are, uh, that you're such a pit bull lover. You, you definitely would fit in in our household. Thanks. We'll have to get him some next-gen material outfits. <laughs> well, the last episode of the show was with Pina Tex, uh, with their uh, CEO. And I, I should have asked her if, if she has any customers of theirs using their pineapple leather for dog uh, outfits. That would be pretty cool if, if we could get something like either pajamas or a bandana or something out of Pina Tex. See, I know you ask all of your um, your guests as well, what are new businesses ideas? I think we just came mm. up with one. Ah, okay. Very good. Yeah. Some next-gen material for dogs. Yep. Clearly a, a hole in the market, okay. no doubt. Okay. All right, good. Well, we're going to get to that. So don't, don't, uh, you, if, if that's your answer to that question, that's good. That would be a good one. You, you certainly would have a customer in, in Tony at least. Um, but before we get there, Nicole, you know, I want to ask you, like, you know, you have had, um, an illustrious career, you know, you're, an, you've been a practicing attorney, you've been a litigator, you've worked in the nonprofit space for a long time. How, how did you get into this? Like, why were you, uh, so interested in law in the first place? Oh, goodness. Um, Actually, I, from my mother, she's told me that I was born a litigator. I guess <laughs> quite a quite a difficult child, um, and very curious about um, the world, and constantly asking why. And actually, that's how I initially came into animal advocacy, which is figuring out that we were having cows for dinner, and it just um, it really affected me. I think I was around five years old. And I just couldn't believe that, you know, we were actually killing and eating animals. And so I think it just grew out of that, my desire to make a difference in the world. And obviously, as an attorney, you you have a lot of power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me about that legal career, because I, I was listening to an interview with you on um, a, a different show. And you said something that really struck me. You know, you were working at the time at the Humane Society of the United States. And I want to just quote what you said. You said, we kept suing factory farms and winning, yet nothing changed. So what do you mean by that? Like you were winning these cases, yet nothing was changing. Why do you say that? Yeah, it was, um, I loved my time at HSUS. It was an incredible team with John LaVorne and Peter Brandt. And we, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, it's very hard to sue on animal cruelty charges. There's not a lot of protections for farmed animals. And so we sued on environmental violations. And we had cases in North Carolina and California, and we would win the cases. But basically, things, the practices did not change. Because the issue with animal agriculture is there's such low profit margins that engaging in positive practices are actually, you know, not violating environmental laws is almost impossible to do. So the insurance companies would pay the attorneys, they'd pay the fines, and I didn't see much change in the system. And I mean, litigation is time intensive, it's very expensive, and I wanted to be more effective in my time. And so I went into nonprofit management because I thought there was a lot more good we could do in this industry. 
Sure. So nonprofit management, what was the next step then? Because you were already in the nonprofit world, mm-hmm. but then management. So what happened? Yeah. So I was, um, I was suing the factory farms for HSUS and the Animal Legal Defense Fund through my law firm, Aura Carrington Sutcliffe. They had a terrific pro bono program that really helped animal advocates. So at that time, I actually joined the board of the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And Steve Wells was looking for a deputy director to come in and and help him run the organizations and oversee the the legal programs. And I tried to help him write a job description. And I was like, you know what, actually, this would be amazing. I would I would love this job. And so that was my first real full time job in animal protection. What happened then, Nicole, from um the time when you're at ALDF working on nonprofit management to the time when you think, all right, I more really want to get more into using markets rather than uh, rather than the legal uh, battles that you were fighting to try to make changes for animals. Well, I think um, everyone who works in animal protection knew Bruce Friedrich, the head of founder and executive director of GFI. We'd actually um, connected when I was in North Carolina. On, I had some connections to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I wanted to help him out while he was at Farm Sanctuary. And so we connected back then, and I'd actually, my ex-husband was in finance, and I thought he could be really valuable to GFI, so I connected him to be on the advisory council, and then started to get all the GFI newsletters, and just thought, this is brilliant. Like, this is using, GFI is using the power of the markets to affect change. And I'm sure most of your listeners know about how um, GFI works, but it's not changing consumer behavior. It's not asking consumers to give something up, right? It's recognizing that consumers like the taste of meat. They buy it because it's convenient, it's cheap, and it's it's something that they really enjoy eating. So what we need to do is give consumers what they want. So let's just create those products that meet those needs, but don't kill animals. And I think, you know, all omnivores will agree. You don't eat meat because you want to kill an animal. You eat meat despite killing an animal. And so I just, I thought that theory of change was absolutely brilliant and I wanted to be involved. And so I joined to run the international expansion. Yeah, well, as as you may know, I could not possibly agree more, Nicole, <laughs> that, you know, the reality is, is that raising awareness about the problems of factory farming is insufficient to change it, that most people just are not making their food choices based on how animals are treated or the environment. Um, even health is oftentimes a secondary or tertiary concern when it comes to the motivating factors that actually drive our food choices. And so I too agree uh, with uh, Bruce's and the Good Food Institute's argument that Really, if we want to change this system and reduce humanity's reliance on animals for food, we have to actually start addressing the areas that really motivate people's food decisions, which, uh, you know, has been famously said many times uh, that it's really, it has to taste good, it has to be cost effective, and it has to be convenient. Um, I don't necessarily know that that's even sufficient, even on its own, because uh, I think the desire for animal meat is really high, um, but I think that's where we got to start. And so I've been very impressed by the work that GFI, including yourself, uh, have been doing. All right, friends, I hope you're enjoying the interview so far. And let me just briefly interrupt to let you know that this episode 
is sponsored by The Very Good Food Company, more commonly known by one of their brands, The Very Good Butchers. I can't tell you how many times listeners of this show ask me how they, not as captains of the venture capital industry with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to invest, but as mere mortals like you and me, can invest in great companies making the world a better place. Well, friends, ask no longer because The Very Good Food Co. is now the second publicly traded plant-based meat company in the United States, meaning you can go online and buy shares in their company today. You can check them out at their ticker, V-R-Y-Y-F. Again, that is V-R-Y-Y-F. For full disclosure, even before they were a sponsor of this show, my wife, Tony, and I became shareholders ourselves since we were so impressed both by the array of really great plant-based meat products that they're offering and the all-star team that they have assembled over there at the Very Good Food Co. These folks are growing fast. They're building production plants, a restaurant, and more. They even just passed their first ever $1 million revenue month, showing that this startup is no joke. Whether it's steaks, ribs, burgers, sausages, pepperoni, or more, you name it, the very good butchers are making and selling it. They even do plant-based salmon, and yes, before you ask, plant-based cheese too via an acquisition that they made. While they are based in Canada, they have production in California too. And yes, they're traded in the US and they are rapidly expanding the reach of the animal-free meats that they are selling. I love their messaging, which focuses on how they are proudly butchering beans, not animals, but they still embrace that artisanal butcher aura in their imagery and in their packaging. So go check them out at verygoodfood.com to see all the brands they own, the good work they're doing, and how you can become a shareholder yourself if you're so inclined. And of course, tasting is believing. So make sure to order a few things from their site and prepare to be wowed. Now, back to the interview. Tell me then, Nicole, uh, you know, you get to this point where you're, you're at GFI for years working on international expansion. At some point you think, you know, the world really needs a new nonprofit organization and I'm gonna start it. So what happened? So I wish I could claim credit for the idea. It's completely not mine for the Material Innovation Initiative. So in my international work at GFI, I established our Indian operations. And through that, I met Stephanie Downs, who is the co-founder of Good Dot, a plant-based meat company in India. So we we met in India and just immediately connected and, and kept in touch. And she's, she's just so impressive. And in, it was around, I think, July 2019, I was having a conversation with her and she said, hey, I'm, I'm actually starting a, the GFI for vegan materials. And I was like, really? And she's, she was writing the job description at the time. And what she needed is she needed somebody with nonprofit management experience who could basically copy GFI's operations for the fashion industry. And it was really an exciting prospect. And so I took me about a month and and then I accepted the job. Wow. Congratulations. Well, I'm a big fan of Stephanie's. I've known her for a, a very long time, uh, long before even Good Dot. And I have really been impressed by her work. And I know that she is, well, you are the head of the organization. I believe that she is the board chair and co-founder. Is that her, her role in the company or excuse me, in the organization? Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that's great. Okay. Well, you know, we're already a little bit into this interview and we really haven't even said yet, aside from the fact that it's GFI for materials, uh, what is the materials innovation initiative? So, uh, like you said, we're a GFI for vegan materials for whoever understands that, but our mission is to accelerate the development of next gen materials 
that are high performance, animal free, and more sustainable for the fashion, automotive, and home goods industries. Okay, fashion, automotive, and home goods. So what's that leaving out? What don't you focus on then? It seems like a lot of materials there. Yeah, so the, think about it as we are working on replacements for animal-based materials. So that's leather, fur, down, wool, exotic skins, and silk. Got it. And so those, those are some of the main materials that are used in those industries. So we're not working on things like cotton because they're not animal-based, and we're not working on things like you know construction materials I see. for buildings. <laughs> But we work on, you know, couches, rugs, mm-hmm. obviously clothing. Yeah. Like Are there animal-based materials used in construction? Uh, it's not my area of expertise, but I believe there are. I think there are byproducts from cows in concrete. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. We actually had on um, Joanne Rodriguez as a guest a few episodes ago. She's the CEO of MycoCycle. And um, while they're not working on creating new construction materials, they have uh, started this company to use mycelium to essentially bioremediate construction waste. And it's a really cool company. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, like, for example, uh, like shingles from your roof, when you throw them out, um, you know, they just go and they get landfilled and nothing, they just sit there for, oh, you know, centuries or millennia. Whereas um, Joanne and her team have created this method for uh, decomposing them within a matter of weeks. It's really cool. Mycelium's um, an amazing, amazing material. Yes, it is. So we're going to talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to ask you, you know, there's a lot of, let's say, alternative leathers out there right now. Nearly all of them are based on fossil fuels. So is that something that MII also promotes? Um, or do you consider that not a sustainable alternative to animal-based products like leather? So we do promote them more than the animal-based materials, but we don't believe that's the future of the industry. So you know, you're referring to things that I think most people think of as pleather, mm-hmm. right? So if you're what we all have as vegans at home, that's our bags and our, our shoes, wallets, et cetera, is highly likely a petrochemical-derived material. We need to move away as a society from petrochemical-derived materials. But right now, they're still better than traditional animal leather on both the lack of killing animals as well as environmental impact. So aside then, Nicole, from the, you know, the fossil fuel based alternative leathers, I mean, I have a pair of dress shoes that I presume are made out of them. Um, I presume the belt that I wear every day is made out of them. But what are the leather alternatives that are really commercially available? Obviously, you know, we see things like, you know, mycelium leather that's not really on the market yet. There's doing cactus leather, which seems really cool. But is there anything at scale that is being made right now in the way that like you have, you know, a beyond or an impossible in the meat industry? Is there anything on alternative leather right now in the material space that is at scale and available to consumers? So it really depends on your definition of at scale. There are products on the market, but I would say they are not at scale. So I know that your interview on Pinatex, the company Ananasanum just came out. That is one great example of a next-gen material it's a leather-based material that is on the market right now and is available, but it's not mass market. It's in specialty products that can be difficult to get. You mentioned cactus-based leather. There's a company, Deserto. They have products on the market now. Actually, I think one of their one of their uh, fossil, the company just came out with a Deserto-based bag, and so it is available, but it's a, it's not 
Yeah. Probably located anywhere where you would purchase your your materials, your clothing. Well, you don't want to know where I purchased mine. Is virtually everything is coming from Goodwill for me. Uh, we actually had on um, a vice president from Goodwill on an earlier episode, and she was talking about uh, basically how the most sustainable thing is to buy used, um, which I, I certainly agree with. But obviously, there's a, only a limited amount of demand for that. Um, but let me ask you, Nicole, why? Like, why is it? Why is it that there's been so much more innovation and market penetration in alternative meat than in alternative leather? So I think it's a very good question. I mean, part of it, I would like to say is there was a GFI, you know, five, six years ago when there was not an MII, right? I think that GFI did an incredible job of getting into the media and into that mass market, the idea of these alternative protein products. And by encouraging entrepreneurs and investors and even big food companies to work in that space, that there's a positive, there's an opportunity for a positive impact on the world, as well as a you know, strong financial return. It really got a lot of people involved and excited. And then that support that GFI gave to the entire industry was extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's one difference. I would say, two, it's likely that you know food, I think, is, is a little bit easier for people to get involved in. So to, to make a new protein, you're looking at things that are like, how does it how does it cook? How does it taste? Um, you know, how does it hold together? Those those are actually a lot easier challenges to tackle than something like a leather that has to last long term, has to be scratch resistant, has to resist water, has to resist color changes, has to have a strong tensile strength so it doesn't rip. So I do think some of the materials can be more tech more complicated technology. I think that what you're saying makes sense, Nicole, but I I also am persuaded by an argument that I've heard you make elsewhere, actually, which is that in some ways it may be easier because you don't have consumer perception issues where, you know, people are far more accepting of technology and the materials that they put on their body rather than the foods that they put in their body. And you have far fewer government regulations, like you don't have to worry about FDA approval or generally recognized as safe status. Um, it, It does seem like there may Maybe a lower bar to meet when using some of these um, high technology products uh, in fashion rather than in food. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Paul. You've definitely done your research. Um, yeah, I think there there are two different parts of the industry, right? There's the demand and there's the supply. I do think that the supply is low right now. I know the supply is low. Like we were talking about, there aren't many of these products on the market, and I think that is because there are some more technology barriers to creating those materials. But when you get into the demand, I 100% agree. Um, Obviously, I said that before, but we're very excited about the lack of barriers to switching consumers and brands away from animal-based materials into vegan materials. And what I can say is we've had meetings with Oh goodness, the number keeps increasing. I haven't looked at it recently, but it's it's somewhere around 50 of the top international fashion and automotive brands. And they are actively looking for these next-gen materials. They just don't exist. Mm-hmm. And so the brands want them. They know consumers want them, but they're not there. And then what I would say for consumers, and we've done some research I can talk about, 
consumers are much more likely to move away from materials made from animals than they are from food made from animals. Because consumers don't generally say, you know, I can't give up my leather. Like they say, I just can't give up my cheese, right? They don't have that emotional or cultural attachment to the products. And they don't mind technology in their clothes and homes and cars. Actually, in many cases, it's desired, right? We all want more technology, but consumers are more reluctant to accept technology in their food. And then finally, I would say that consumers also use and purchase vegan materials already. And in many cases, they're not even aware of the difference. So all of us have vegan materials at home. And if you talk to people about food, I know I've heard people say, well, I don't eat vegan food. It's like, well, you're not a carnivore. Like, yes, you do. <laughs> right. Yes. Did, have you ever enjoyed French fries? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, a Coke, right, is also vegan. So um, it's people very aware that they have non-material, non-animal-based materials. Yeah, I don't really think that people contemplate that much at all what their things are made out of. I mean, if you buy mm -hmm. Gore-Tex, how many people know what that actually is? They just know, you know, this is this material. Or um, I, I have this uh, very lightweight shirt that's really uh, warm. You know, despite being very thin and lightweight, it's very warm. And frankly, I have no idea what it's made out of. I never even, I never even contemplated what it's made out of. Um, so I, I do think that there's probably high, way less fidelity to having some Thing that is animal-based in, in fashion. So I, I'm really just affirming what you're saying, but I do think that, you know, there's just uh, probably uh, far, far fewer obstacles in this sense than there are for animal products that we're consuming. And to me, that suggests that for entrepreneurs or want, people who want to be entrepreneurs, like this is a massive, massive white space. Um, you know, like I'm not against starting another plant-based burger company, but you know, there's a lot of competition in that space already. Um, I think there's room for even more, frankly. I mean, there's, after all, there's room for McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, even though they're all selling fast food burgers. So, you know, there's certainly room for a lot of plant-based burger companies too. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there's nearly nothing, as you're pointing out, that's at scale yet uh, when it comes to alternative leather. Uh, so this is like such a massive white space, which leads me then to this question, Nicole, that I'm wondering, and I think that you probably know a lot more about it than I do, you know, how much good does it do? Um, you know, like for example, you know, our, no cow to my knowledge is raised for their leather, right? We raise them for the meat and a lot of people consider leather a byproduct. Would you say it's more of a co-product? Like what percentage of the economic value of a cow is coming from leather? So like, you know, how much do you, uh, let's say save animals by replacing leather as opposed to saving meat or excuse me, replacing meat? Yeah, it's an excellent question that I actually get quite a lot. Um, you know, is it a byproduct? And we'll just focus on leather. Is it a byproduct or is it a co-product? And a co-product is produced along with the main product, and it really carries equal importance to the main product. Whereas a byproduct is you know, not really planned. It's it's a side thought. I think a co-product is something that's required to maintain that industry, right? That if you were not getting that a profit from that product, that your main you know, source, your main source of income would fall away because it doesn't, it's not economically viable. And that is definitely true with leather. So we're actually, we talk about us as part of the entire movement to remove animals, animal agriculture completely. And it will have a positive impact on the food industry as well. And actually two, two very respected organizations, um, Rethink X, so if, if anyone's read the Rethink X 
uh, animal agriculture report. I think it's it's almost two years old now, but it's really good. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes for people who would like to see it. Great. Thanks. Yeah, that's, it's really helpful. And we've been talking to them quite a bit on the disruption. They're disruption experts and economists. So helping to understand the materials industry and animal agriculture in general. And then also Dr. Liz Specht from the Good Food Institute. She wrote a, a great blog that we could also link. I can send you that the uh, the profit margins in the animal agriculture industry are so small that a disruption in the price of leather could actually have a ripple effect throughout the beef industry, significantly increasing the price and lowering the demand. So the profit in animal agriculture for a cow is about 5%. The profit from leather is also about 5%. And the way the economists at Rethink X, um, Catherine Tubb was one of the authors of that report, has talked to us on materials that when you start to decrease the demand for that part of leather, for some farms, you know, raising cattle is going to be unprofitable. And so they're going to start to close. And then once you start to to reduce that supply, the price is going to increase. And then there's going to be lower demand. And so they really do believe that focusing on materials could be a great inroad to ending the beef industry. Wouldn't that argument then apply, Nicole, also to byproducts? Like whether it's a co or a byproduct, I mean, couldn't you make that same argument that, hey, you know, they're getting some marginal percent return on, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, the, the bones that are going to gelatin, as an example. And if you eliminated that, that could be like this tipping point. Would you say that's plausible? Yeah, I would. I am not an economist, so I would leave it up to the economists on whether that profit margin is high enough. But there's um, actually someone recently told me about an economist named Buckminster Fuller, who had this idea of a trim tab. So he said, describe a, think of um, a big, huge ship, like a massive you know, shipping ship or a um, cruise ship that's heading in one direction. If you want, that's animal agriculture. You want to steer that ship away from its path of killing animals. What do you do? Do you get in the front of it and like push your hands and try and you know, stop this huge smash, this ship that's going forward? No, you could take an action where you could actually switch the entire rudder to the side, which is also a, a big movement, or you could uh, move the trim tab that is on the rudder. It's really tiny. It's really easy to move, but it does affect the movement of the entire ship. And so his idea is when you're trying to disrupt an entire industry, you need to look for those trim tabs. What is the easiest way to affect change? And in our case, it's what is that easiest way to reduce the profit of animal agriculture? And we do believe that that's materials based okay. on what we've been talking about before, that not only is the industry looking for it, right? you have these massive, like Adidas just made an announcement of new shoes. You have huge companies that are introducing these products, looking into them and believing they're the future of the industry. I want to say a side note on this in a second, but you have that and the ease of the consumers, that the consumers just are not as opposed to this change as they are in food, that this makes a lot of sense of a place to focus. Um, Sure. Yeah. And, and the Adidas announcement to which you're referring, I believe, is the, the uh, partnership with Bolt Threads to do a mycelium-based leather shoe. Is that right? And they just announced another shoe that came out on the market right now. 
we had on uh, one of the co-founders of Bolt Threads talking about that on a past episode also, which is a, a pretty exciting commercialization for that company, which has been around for, you know, like a decade. And this is like their first really meaningful um, commercialization uh, opportunity mm-hmm. with with Adidas. I know they had done their uh, spider silk ties that they made a very like small run of, but this is like the first real mass market penetration for them. So it was really exciting to see that coming to fruition. Yeah, the partnership was also with Caring and Stella McCartney and Lululemon. So there's um there's a lot of big names that mm-hmm. are supporting the snack gen material industry. And actually, if I can mention that little um, anecdote that I wanted to to say about how quickly I think the fashion industry will change, we are working with a ten billion dollar French luxury brand. Can't mention their name. We're under strict NDA, but they are not publicly talking about working in next-gen materials, but they're doing significant work behind the scenes. And they've told us that they want to be the leaders in this space. So they're preparing to come out as as the top leaders in next-gen materials and replacements to silk, cashmere, and leather. They're just not doing it right now. And for me, that's that's what's so exciting is that you have all of these massive very influential companies with a lot of power who see this as the future, but it's not out there in the market yet. Mm-hmm. So there's, just, there's massive opportunity in the space. Indeed, I, I totally agree. There is massive opportunity. And uh, you, you've mentioned Silk a few times, so I want to ask you about that. But before we do, I want to say, you know, Buckminster Fuller is a, a, I'm a huge fan of his. In fact, when you walk into the Better Meat Co. in our lobby, we have a gigantic quote from Buckminster Fuller on the wall there. And the quote is very relevant to what you're doing, Nicole. Um, he said that to change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And so I, I have, you know, I, I think many people who have devoted their lives to trying to raise awareness and trying to change hearts and minds have realized that it will probably just be faster to go the Buckminster Fuller route, which is simply render the existing model obsolete rather than trying to persuade people that they have some moral opposition to the existing model, um, which seems to have not uh, yielded uh, the, the type of results that many people in the animal welfare and environmental movements would want, I think. Um, but I do want to ask you about silk because you mentioned a few times, Nicole, and on your website, I was pretty surprised. It indicated that uh, the most environmentally taxing material is silk. And so you listed them. You said the five most environmentally damaging materials are in this order, silk, alpaca wool, leather, cotton, and then regular wool, I presume from sheep, not, not alpaca. Um, I don't really know much about the alpaca wool industry, but it was fascinating to me that silk was the number one most taxing thing because I don't really know that much about it. Um, I know many people have a hard time uh, sympathizing or, or especially empathizing with worms. I, I know that the worms are, are boiled alive, but I think many people you know, sadly just don't care that much about worms. But what is so environmentally taxing about silk? Um, it's clear from an animal welfare perspective, if you care about worms, why it's bad, but why is it bad for the planet? Well, what I will say, I want to qualify what I'm about to say, which is sustainability is extremely complicated. Um, Establishing the parameters of what you examine and how we're having an impact on the planet can be very, very complicated because there's a lot of interdependent factors. So this specific data comes from an organization called the HIG Index that collects life cycle analysis information on materials used in the fashion industry. 
they they collect information about all the materials. They're not just focused on animal materials. And they look at global warming, eutrophication, water scarcity, and abiotic resource depletion. They do not, the data right now does not have chemistry. So the you know, negative impact on potential chemicals and things like microplastic pollution, that data just doesn't exist right now. And those are the big critiques of HIG. So if you take out those two and you just, if you take out the you know, microplastic and chemistry and you just focus on global warming, eutrophication, water scarcity, and abiotic resource depletion, that's where silk has the largest impact. And mm-hmm. the biggest areas are, you know, use of water and global warming. Interesting. And for those who don't know what eutrophication is, you want to just tell people, Nicole? Sure. It's uh, usually when you have too many nutrients that get into waterways, and it's usually runoffs from animal agriculture. And then I think you a lot of algae grows and takes away the oxygen in the water. It's killing right. a lot of the other species in the water. Yeah, right. You, usually from like nitrogen or phosphorus, mm-hmm. which are, are very prevalent in animal manure. But um, yeah, well, you know, that's really interesting. Um, I, uh, I I don't know what the silk alternatives are aside from what Bolt Threads is doing. And I know that they haven't really commercialized that yet. Um, but And there's also Spiber, I know, um, which I think is in Japan. But is there anybody who has really commercialized anything as a silk alternative yet that is meaningfully penetrated the market? So right now, the biggest alternative to silk is polyester. But again, we do not want to use polyester. It's a petrochemical-derived material. And so if you're talking next-gen silk, there really is very little. So like you mentioned, bolt threads, fiber. There's a few others, micro-silk, amsilk, Cvix, spidey tex, um, I think orange fiber, smart fiber, Enca. Those are some of the other companies who are working on this. Like we talked about with leather, there's a few products, especially using the mechanical chemical technology that are on the market, um, but they're not mass market yet. There's still huge opportunities for development in that space. It's remarkable, Nicole, that every category that we're talking about, there is like nearly nothing of a big company. There's a lot of little startups, but there's no big company that has some big footprint in the marketplace for any of these next-gen animal-free materials. Yeah, no, it really it really is. I think um, that's what's so exciting for entrepreneurs and investors about this space is yeah. it is wide open at the moment. And we're actually right. putting out, hopefully in the middle of June, our first next-gen industry report. So cool. Elaine Sue, who's our chief innovation officer, is analyzing the market right now and putting that out to really help investors and entrepreneurs understand the opportunities in this space. And obviously, like it worked in the food industry, we are um, targeting mass like chemical companies who produce hmm. these you know pleathers or polyesters and help them understand the huge value of getting into this space. Yeah. Is there any pushback from any of these companies? Uh, obviously, in the meat industry, we have seen pushback from like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association and other uh, other interest groups that represent the folks who raise animals for food. Is there any type of pushback, though, similarly, like, you know, there's a lot of litigation battles, let's say, over how meat gets labeled um, and other similar uh, battles that have been fought in the courts over alternative meats right now. Is there anything similar yet in the fashion world? So not as strong as there was in the in the food industry. There's 
the the material companies are pretty worried about two policy issues. One is the labeling. So like we saw in the food industry, the challenges to using traditionally animal-based terms for vegan products like um, a burger or sausage or milk. Unfortunately, Italy has banned the use of the term leather for non-animal-based leathers. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. So what, so what do they have to call it? I don't know. I don't know if there's a recommendation of what they need to call it, but they cannot use the term leather. Wow. So wow. it's that's a big concern. And Italy is you know, one of the top fashion you know, countries in the world. And then the other, the other concern is tariffs. So there's actually significantly higher duties on materials that replace animal-based materials versus the animal-based materials. And that can be actually as high as 35%, (laughs) which obviously, if you're trying to reach price parity, that's a huge burden. So I'm hoping, actually, I had a great call on Friday with a major lobbying firm in DC that I think will take this on pro bono. They're really excited about it, um, so I just have to, you know, have to work that out. But I think they, the industry, understands that this is going to happen, right? It's just how many blocks are we going to have to overcome? Sure, sure, um, great. Well, uh, speaking of overcoming blocks, so there's going to have to be a lot more innovation, a lot more companies, a lot more investment in this space. So, if you, Nicole, had your wish and you could create any company that you wanted in this space. And let, let's just say that you you know, had a, a vast amount of wealth at your fingertips and you wanted to put out a notice saying, I'll fund a company to do this. What do you think is the most pressing need right now? So I would probably say from an impact standpoint, silk, because we're talking 1 trillion silkworms that are boiled alive or, or baked alive every year. And like you mentioned, the high environmental impact. I think there's huge opportunities in the precision fermentation technology to basically grow proteins. So whether it's keratin or fibroin or collagen. So I think that is is a huge impact as well as, and this is sort of unrelated to our mission in saving animals, polyester was developed as an alternative to silk. Polyester actually makes up 70% of the materials used in the fashion industry. It's by far the, the highest volume. And so if I was an investor or an entrepreneur, I would want to tackle both of those simultaneously, that you could create a silk replacement that really was a true silk replacement. And then if you look at the brands, why would they, and we can actually even improve on silk. Right. So anyone who owns silk, you know, you can't get water on it. You can't put it in the in the wash using when we're not constrained to the biological constraints of that animal. We can do a lot more. So you could, you know, replace silk, make it better and then actually tackle the, the problems with polyester as well. Cool. Well, for all of you folks who are interested in investing in or starting your own company, you heard it right here from Nicole, start a silk alternative company and you're going to get support from MII to do it. Uh, Now, Nicole, for those of people who might want to start a company or maybe they want to join a company in this space, um, you've seen this issue from a lot of sides now, having been in the nonprofit animal advocacy space to uh, the um, Good Food Institute and now to MII. Uh, What resources would you recommend 
Are there things that have been helpful to you that you would recommend to other folks who might benefit from do, from consuming them as well? So unfortunately not. There's really not a lot available on this because it's a nascent industry. I will say there's a few publications from to understand the fashion industry from Global Fashion Agenda and Boston Consulting Group that's called the Pulse Pulse of the Industry Report, those are really good reports. I think they also put out the CEO agenda to understand the entire fashion industry. I, I will then put a personal plug in for our materials that where we really are doing a lot of different analyses that we hope will make it easier for entrepreneurs, scientists, investors to get into this space. Our chief scientific officer is finalizing a report we're calling What Makes Silk Silk? which we hope to publish June 1st. And so please sign up for our newsletter and and you'll get a notification as soon as that comes out. And it's really geared towards helping scientists understand what they need to do to replace silk. What are those components? Like what really does make silk silk? Why is it so special? And combining that scientific viewpoint with the fashion design uh, viewpoint. So Dr. Sydney Gladman is our scientist. Thomasine Dolan is our fashion designer. So they're working together to basically merge those views to help develop this entirely new industry. And then, like I mentioned, our chief innovation officer, Elaine Sue, is putting out the Next Gen Market Industry Report in hopefully mid-June. Okay, very cool. So for those folks who want to sign up for the newsletter that you're encouraging them to, I presume they can just go to the materialinnovation.org website? Correct. Okay, so go to materialinnovation.org and check it out. Sign up and you can learn more about how you can work with the Material Innovation Initiative to do great things to advance the animal-free material space, which as you, if you take away any from this, anything from this interview, it's that it is a nearly untapped space and we need a lot more innovation and investment into it in order to achieve the goals of sustainability that so many people are seeking to achieve. So Nicole, we'll be rooting for you. I'm really glad to see your new endeavor here and hope that it's a, a smashing success and that you uh, become as big as GFI is now and continue to grow this nascent industry of next-gen animal-free materials. Oh, Paul, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you helping us get the word out because that's what we need. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good.